0: I'm Ben Fine. Um, <clears throat> I've been involved in doing research, policymaking, and so on in South Africa for 30 years or so. I've been asked to chair this discussion and say a few remarks just to give you pause for thought and to prepare your own questions, which I think Jim will spend most time answering. I don't want to say anything about what has happened since in light of the inquiry itself. Uh, because Jim will be better able to answer that. But uh, I do want to say something about how Marikana sheds a very deep light on the extreme contradictions and fractures uh, in South Africa and say something about what has caused that in terms of the evolution of the post-apartheid economy and society. Obviously, that could take a long time, and I'm going to be only a few minutes, but I want to emphasize four really significant processes which, in a sense, overlay one another and in many ways are brought out um, by the film itself. These processes are ones which are not unique to South Africa or to a large extent, but uh, were previously stunted by apartheid itself. The first is the globalization of production, the ownership of production, the organization of production. The second is the financialization of the economy. The fastest growing sector of the economy in South Africa has been finance. It takes 20% of of national income, even though 40% or more of people share no uh, uh, formal uh, financial relations at all. The economy itself continues to remain dominated by what I've called a mineral energy complex, of which platinum is now in the front line, having displaced gold. And the fourth, and this is unique to South Africa, is the extraordinary process of what is called black economic empowerment, but which is in fact black economic enrichment of a very, very wealthy and small uh, minority one representative of which was significantly highlighted. Everything else, really, in South Africa, including the conflicts, employer unemployment, social and economic provision, really have to be managed to allow those four huge processes to take place, whether it be unemployment, housing, inequality, labour market wages and conditions, and so on. And these... The dominance of those four processes that I've highlighted have, is really what has built, has created the deep fractures within and around the trip, what's called the triple alliance within South Africa itself, the three component parts, parties being the ANC, the Communist Party of South Africa, and KSATU. And this has created enormous ideological and material splits and interests across the society most obviously seen in terms of the conflict between uh, the new union that has emerged with NUM, which remains very loyal to the ANC, and most recently the quite extraordinary expulsion of NUMSA, the leading and most progressive union within South Africa, from CASATU itself, the the collective organisation for trade unions. Also underpinning this uh, has been the one thing that I have been emphasising for some time now, is the extraordinarily illegal export of finance from South Africa, as much as, at its height, was 23% of GDP in 2007. So when we think about the inability to pay wages, to provide housing, to provide employment, and so on, we have to recognise that a vast majority of South Africa's wealth continues to be taken out of the country and in the forefront of this, are the mining companies. So I just wanted us to, to, to point out uh, in a very, very general way the sorts of forces and pressures which become condensed in the mining sector and lead to the sorts of conflicts and the outcomes that we've just uh, witnessed. But perhaps I'll leave it there. And I don't know if Jim wants to say a few remarks first or just to wait for questions all contributions
1: I'll tell you something (laughs) just a couple of things first of all you must remember that the rock drillers uh they're migrant labors within South Africa that was really quite important they come from a thousand kilometers away in the eastern cape I tell you that because it might become relevant later second small point on it's not a small point that's that the the man that you saw heaving himself up the orange man Mr. Netanyahu he died He's the man, the big man that you saw uh, there. What is worse is that his wife saw him die on television because it was being broadcast live. It was pretty awful. So just bear that in mind. But let me say this. These killings should never have occurred. It's like the bad old days of colonialism and apartheid. This is 20 years after democracy, and miners were killed in the name of profit. Simple as that. London, a multinational company, took a catastrophic strategic decision that instead of negotiating with the miners, not even conceding the 12,500 that they asked for, but instead of negotiating with them, that they would call in the police long before any violence occurred and that they'd seek the support of government and the National Union of Mine Workers. And so three parties embarked with a common strategy and a common purpose for a whole week. Lonman, to try and get a short, sharp strike brought to an end and get its profits. The National Union of Mine Workers, in the hope that it could defeat the new emerging union, AMCU, and the government of the ANC, who thought had two reasons. One, they wanted international investor confidence. Two, they wanted to prevent the idea that workers could go on strike and win a living wage, to prevent that from going throughout the coal mining industry, the gold mining industry, and other sections. They lost that. You saw that uh, uh, in September of 2012. Uh, The miners were by and large successful. There were then uh, another 100,000 workers who went on strike after that, both in mining, in motor car industry, and in transport, and then a little bit later in the agricultural uh, fields, uh, the, the wine fields uh, of the Western Cape, where a further three agricultural workers were killed by police officers. But returning to the, the, the core of it, the miners were killed for profit, and those three organisations came together and colluded and colluded for their own ends, but it was a very, very powerful collusion, and it's a tragic—it's uh, a tragic day, really. I mean, this, certainly, I'm sure Ben points exactly the same as myself. I mean, long before the end of apartheid, we campaigned against apartheid, uh, and we supported the African National at least I did, supported the ANC. And what was tragic was to switch on your television here in London on the 16th of August 2012, and to watch. The government that you supported gunned down poor miners. A, a, a terrible thing. Anyway, there you are. That, they're my remarks.
0: Thank you. Uh, could you explain the the, the the murder charge on which those miners were um, or what they were put on, uh, sort of a group murder charge. Is that because of the, peop- the, the NUM people who were killed earlier on in the process, or who were they accused of murdering? There
1: were two sets of murder charges. Over, t- over 270 <coughs> minors are arrested, as the documentary tells you, um, and then were subsequently charged with murder. Try and follow this logic. We, the state, are charging you, the minors, with murder, because you charged the police officers, the police officers thought that you were going to kill them. So, in order to defend themselves, they shot the miners. But they would never have shot the miners had you not charged them. Therefore, you're guilty of murder. We're charging you. I, I tell you, that is the common purpose uh, rule. Are uh, there? Fortunately, I mean, in the last few months, that has been kicked into touch. All of those charges uh, have now been withdrawn permanently. There is a second set, which you see uh, uh, towards the end there, where three or four miners are still charged with murder. That's on the basis uh, of one man uh, who says, you know, I was part of the um, shop stewards committee uh, and I know that these people did the killings. Uh, he, 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 there's nobody at the commission places any weight upon them and I'm confident that all of the murder charges are going. Oh, I'm cheering, aren't i am cheering Please. The report is the report of the commission yes. is going to be sent to President Zuma by the end of March. It then depends upon President Zuma when he releases the report. Is there any rule on how long he has to release or publish the report, or is it completely up to him? Uh, In in the past, uh, my understanding is that uh, some reports have never been released, but I don't think they're going to get away with this one. So I I don't know whether it's going to be um, a month or three months or whatever, but it will be released. And sorry, in in your opinion, once it gets released, what will be the political implication of the the findings. Well, the political implications are really touched upon by Ben and in his introduction. They're already there. South Africa is never, ever going to be the same place. Never, not in a month of Sundays, are there. You know, life has changed post Marikana, And Ben says that a number of things have happened. First of all, the rise of AMCU, which probably at the beginning of the strike was about 20,000. They may well be in the order of about 150, 160,000 now. They are completely independent of any party. They will have nothing to do with the ANC and nothing to do with any other party. They are in many respects seen by some sections of the South African community as a beacon against the ANC. That's the first thing that's changed, and now they dominate the whole platinum mining industry. And last year, if if people followed it through, uh, 2014, the same people who were here on strike in 2012 went on strike in 2014 for five months. Five, they were starving. I'm telling you, they were starving. And I thought they're never going to win it. No, no, no. They won it. They won in 2014. So that's, it's a huge change since Marikana. NUMSA, uh, the Metal Workers' Union, as a result of Marikana, or one of the reasons Maracana, is now splitting from uh, the government. It is the blue collar, the workers' union, Uh, of of South Africa. It is the biggest union in South Africa, and we have to see where that goes because it it itself is talking about forming a new workers' party, some united front plus a workers' party, that's not clear. The third thing that's happening is the rise of something called the economic freedom fighters. Now, we don't know where that's going to go. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, we've seen in history um, organisations rise and fall the following year. I mean, there's an organisation in Northern Ireland um, long before most of you were born uh, called People's Democracy, uh, which produced a magnificent uh, Member of Parliament called Bernadette uh, Devlin, now McClaskey. It went up and it came down. So we don't know with the EFF, but I fancy that it's here to stay a little bit longer. It got a million votes. It got uh, nearly 6%, but more significantly, the million votes came from young people, are there People under the age of 25... So I think it's here to stay and it's making big waves. So those three factors, right, have changed the political landscape of South Africa and it's not going back to its pre-Maricana days.
0: In yellow. Thank you. Um, I don't know that much about the platinum industry, but I heard that they had stockpiles, so there wasn't... Any, I, I'm, I have no idea if that's true or not, but maybe you could say something about that.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they had stockpiles. That's why the strike lasted five months in 2014. Uh, um, and really, uh, AMCU and the NUM, because they're still significant in the mining industry, they've got to get their act together uh, and not allow that. I mean, it's, it, it, to have stockpiles uh, of platinum, it, it's very difficult to win the strike. And, of course, it's precisely what uh, the government did here um, in the United Kingdom in 1984. I mean, they stockpiled coal and then broke the back of the miners' union. Uh, and, you know, the, Lonman and Amplatz and Implats, uh, Impala, they will live to fight another day. There will be more fights uh, there. This is not the end of it. Um, I was wondering if Lonmin has made any public statements about the massacre, and if it has at all changed its practices in South Africa and in the worldwide. Not much, but Lonmin is a British company, and it had its annual general meeting uh, last week, um, and so some a number of women organised a little picket outside uh, there, holding things. It was very successful. Uh, I uh, applied to go inside, it was inside the Westminster Abbey complex and was refused, uh, but not, not many people know who I am, so I turned up um, looking a bit like this with my shirt and tie and like a lawyer, so I wasn't stopped by security, and I, I had little, nice little white envelopes which said, uh, Lonman shareholder, and I said to everyone going in, Lonman shareholder, me? yes, fine, have a look this. a copy of this DVD, and a letter which I signed, which said... The 2014 Lonman Annual Report does not disclose that many prominent lawyers at the Maracana Commission of Inquiry have submitted that Lonman directors be prosecuted for murder and culpable homicide. So this was a good start to the shareholders meeting uh, there. Um, and at the end of it, uh, yeah, I was wondering how to finish it. So I said, uh, you know, notwithstanding, we're still waiting for the decision uh, of the Fiala Commission. Uh, shareholders should authorize a million rand uh, per family, and, the, and that was it. It didn't get much um, publicity here, but let me tell you, in South Africa, it, it really hit the jackpot. We got it all over the place. So that really cheered things up. But as to your question, lawnmen are as hard as nails. I mean, they're as hard as nails. Uh, again, I mean, I don't want to be patronising, but, but some of us remember it, uh, 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 just because of our age. Long- sorry. When Zimbabwe was Rhodesia, there was a um, – the, the UDI was declared by the white minority uh, government, and there was a boycott organised by then the, the, the British Labour government, Harold Wilson, I think it was, uh, against any import and expo- exports into uh, b- b- white Rhodesia, one company, particularly organised to break the boycott, it was called Lonroe. Right, the son or the daughter of Lonroe is called Lonman. It is the same company. Right, <laughs> that's who they are. No, no. Okay. Okay.
0: Um, I don't mean to be parochial, can you see any parallels between, you've already hinted at the parallels between um, the actions here and the British miners' strike, is this a universal story or where else do you see these parallels occur? I
1: mean, I, it's, I think there are other parallels. I mean, I think wherever you get a major strike, the government intervenes. And it intervenes by using the police or sometimes the army. So, I mean, there has been in Britain, for example, when the firemen or the firefighters have been on strike are uh, there, you've got the green goddesses going in from the army to try and break that strike. In other countries, there are different uh, things that are going. What, what is very interesting about what has happened in South Africa is that it is one of those occasions, one of those rare occasions so from what I can see. I mean, someone else tell me different. Where we've got the documentation and the evidence of collusion between the state and capital. If you remember, Dalian Pofo says there, you know, this is collusion between the state and capital. So we have documents. So Lonman Wright, uh, the director of Lonman, writes to uh, the minister, uh, the, uh, the minister of mines, a woman called Susan Shabangu, and says, you know, you must bring the might of the state to bear. The army and the police to come to this strike. I mean, it, it, it's amazing to see this sort of uh, stuff. In, in, in written, we all have all the telephone calls that are going between the various uh, the various people, and here, the, the well, between the emails and the letters, there is one strategy to which Ramaphosa is involved, and that is changing the strike from being an industrial dispute to characterising the strike as being criminal. Because once you characterise the strike as being, you know, just a bunch of criminals or strikers, then you have the justification for sending in something like nearly 700 people are uh, there armed to the teeth with machine gun rifles, which, according to the police, fire at the rate of 600 rounds per minute. I mean, astonishing uh, stuff, really. Uh, and they use it because the very same Susan Shibangu two or three years earlier, when she was uh, a minister of police, addressed a conference of police... um, I think there were superintendents then, I think, but senior police officers. And she made a a famous speech, uh, which was referred to as a shoot-to-kill speech, which is, shoot the bastards. Shoot the bastards, you have one shot, shoot. And she was telling police superintendents that they should embark upon that... uh, so what you find in South Africa today is that, depending upon the year, the, the year uh, 800 to 1,000 people are killed each year by police officers. Now, it's a violent society, and perhaps that's a, not, not being quite just uh, to, to some of the police officers there. I mean, there's a lot of armed robberies, you know, and so maybe some people are going to get killed anyhow. But it is an astonishing figure, and nobody gets convicted. Uh, there. So this is the woman, Susan Trebanga, who's saying these things, right? And we were able to trace her through the training schools with uh, trainers encouraging police officers to use their initiative uh, to fire into Maracana. Awful. Can I just
0: add, add to this? We were talking before, and it turns out both of us were advisors to Arthur Scargill 30 years ago. And uh, in my academic work, I wrote about the policing and the media, Uh, of the miners' strike, the British miners' strike. And uh, I say the way to put it, it was effectively to be a criminal, to be a striking miner, and exactly the same thing has happened in Marikana. And, again, we have exactly the same sort of picture in the media in terms of representation. But, again, the thing I was going to say, and, 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 and Jim has said it really very, very well, is this also then becomes associated with the particular culture of policing where the police believe they can do what they want, pretty much. And uh, that is something, again, we can find very, very strongly in the consequences of the mining strike in Britain, as well as what we can see very, very powerfully in the nature of policing uh, within South Africa as well. I just want to add one other thing as as well, which is what I think is also striking about not just Marikana, but the development of this platinum mining now which has become urgent because of the uh, decline of gold is it's not just like it was under apartheid, it's like the primitive forms of capitalist mining at all times throughout history. You know, that this is something which is characteristic of the nature of the way in which mining takes place and the particular forms of exploitation of the working people, not only in their wages but also in their working conditions, their housing, their health, and so on. And so this is not something new. And what is so horrendous about this, you know, apart from the, from the from Americana itself, is that this is not some inheritance from apartheid that is taking time to get rid of. This is reproducing an, anew the conditions which have always been characterized characteristic of this form of mining. And it's completely unnecessary. I just uh, want to say, there seems to be uh, a a great amount of contemporaneous video footage. I was just wondering how influential that's been in the inquiry and um, what effect has it had on the general South African population?
1: Two bits there. The, The footage, a lot of that footage was concealed from the commission initially by the police and we discovered it uh, a year later. Um, That's the first thing. Secondly, a lot of uh, companies were a bit reluctant to hand over their material because they feared the consequences either from the police or some of them said uh, from the miners. Uh, But eventually, a lot of the footage that we got was really by going to see someone in Al Jazeera uh, who had refused the footage and simply saying, really emotionally blackmailing him, saying, are you really going to allow this commission to go ahead and not give us this material? And eventually, I I got, I don't know, about 150 clips. Um, You know, sometimes they're very short. uh, For the day, they'd been there the whole of the day. Uh, So we got that. So that's the first part. So we got a lot of stuff there. The Lonman material, uh, I mean, it's it's entirely... I'll come to it in just one second, but Lundman have a lot of cameras, 400 cameras uh, on site, so we got all of that. So that's, true. Sure. but you ask a much more uh, important question, which is really the people of South Africa, because that's it's the same question I've asked myself uh, in all of it. Because investigative journalism in South Africa is really at a very high standard, and so I then, I, and the journalists are very brave. A lot of them write stories about the government and about ministers, only to find themselves arrested. Uh, banged up for days on end, their, their houses destroyed and the like. And so they're very brave. So I then have to ask myself, why is it that in general, when it comes to Marikana, there has not been the investigation by South African journalists that there should be? And I, and I don't really know the answer uh, to it. It, it. You know, they, they will report sometimes day by day at the commission some banal stuff. Um, but if I tell you, for example that Exhibit A at the Commission, handed in in October 2012, comprises of all of the post-mortem reports of everyone who was killed. Each of those reports has a one-page summary. It discloses the following, 14 people were shot in the back. Four people were shot in the back of the head. 32 out of 34 people were shot above the waist. Now, I put that because as an investigative journalist, or someone interested, you might be interested in testing the police proposition that they were charged by minors. Well, the minors were, which direction were they running in? Are there? I mean, I think there are 16 minors who've got upwards of 10 bullet holes in them. To my knowledge, not a single journalist in South Africa accessed Exhibit A ever. And, and, and we're now down to Exhibit A. Quadruple Z, um, 22 or something. And I, the index, which is nicely set out on the commission website uh, there, uh, runs 96 pages. And so to come back to your question, the public in South Africa are by, not in the dark. I mean, they see what happens. But there's no real discussion as to why and wherefore and the like. Um, I mean, one point that Ben raises, which is really the whole question of the export of capital out of South Africa... 4.9% of the turnover, or thereabouts, of the turnover, not profit, so we're talking about vast billions of rands, have been secreted out of the country to Bermuda or to London. Now, I can tell you the London office has got four employees, right? So what they're doing with 2.9% of it here, you know, they're distributing it to shareholders. They're avoiding paying their tax, are uh, they? So... Th- This is what happens. But that stuff doesn't really get a great airing. It gets some airing. So I come back to it. Why is it that it's like that? I don't know. Are people ashamed? Because whilst you can put up with um, discussing uh, Sharpeville and Soweto, is Marikana too raw for the new South Africa? I I don't know. So the answer is, not the answer, I don't know the answer to your question. I don't know what it is in South Africa that leaves it hanging in the air. No, 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 the impact, the, you know, the impact in, t- in terms of workers uh, standing up and fighting uh, for their rights. I mean, the, uh, all the people who are, jo- who are voting for the EFF, you know, they, these are unemployed people, a lot of unemployed, huge unemployment amongst uh, uh, the youth who are voting for the EFF. I mean, the catalyst is Marikana uh, there, but if you ask me about the wider public, sometimes. I mean, I uh, did a meeting uh, of several hundred shop stewards in Numsa. Uh, and we showed this film, and one of the shop stewards came to me afterwards and said, you know, I've always supported uh, the miners at Marikana, but I really did believe that they'd attacked the police, right? And now I know that they didn't, because you can see it there, there's also other stuff. But no one has done anything like that, and so the, the, the population... Uh, subject to the propaganda that is put out by the ruling party. You, you see the way in which that the police commissioner goes on the offensive uh at Erso after the killings. What you did was the very best of South African policing, and there was a lot of that. So I think that also you know plays a part in it.
0: Has the film been shown in, in
1: South Africa? How many people have seen it there, would you say? Uh, There is a, 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 a chain of cinemas, um, I mean, I'm not from South Africa, so I don't know things, but there's a chain of cinemas which I would describe as being like um, the Curzon chain um, that you have here, or you know, the, the Renoir and Bloomsbury, or that sort of thing. Um, so it was in, there in you know, Cape Town, Durban, Johannesburg, Pretoria, all the major towns, and this was on for one week, which is pretty good. on general release for one week in all of those cinemas. So that's good news. So I don't know how many people went there. Uh, But certainly within the trade union movement, uh, I've personally been involved in showing it to thousands of trade unionists, organised either by uh, NUMSA uh, or taking it to Marikana and showing it there, or uh, the Municipal Workers' Union or other unions there, Um, and also into colleges and into schools uh, there. So... It's getting a fair uh, fair airing, Uh, but it's also been shown uh, two or three times on English Al Jazeera. Thank you. Um, Could you tell us something about the mine workers' families um, and how they've been involved in the commission, um, how they've been treated and what sort of things they've had to deal with? They live a thousand kilometres away. You know, the, sometimes the knock came to the door a thousand kilometres away, and they were simply told. I mean, it, it, what they must have gone through is utterly horrific. I've been uh, to the homes of 29 families in the Eastern Cape, and these people, you know, live in very poor conditions. So there's no gas. Sometimes there's electricity uh, as it happens. Uh, never any water in the house. I haven't been to any uh, things, so the little rendezvous with the thatched, uh, the thatched top. Uh, each miner uh, would be sending home sufficient money to support probably an average of between 8 and 12 of the extended, uh, extended family. Initially, the families were refused financial assistance to come to the commission, but we fought that and we got them there. And what I can't tell you, it's remarkable what's happened to them. They arrive at the first Christmas, and Christmas 2012, we have this little service uh, in the garage underneath the commission. It was awful. And people are weeping. It is so sad, I can't tell you. Uh, but there. And that's and Then we get to the August of 2013, and we're having the first commemoration uh, at Maracana, where you see all these crosses are there and so we go to the families who speak Kosa, uh and sometimes Zulu and we say very tentatively um, do you think one of you might just say a few words and we explain and the like uh, just we just need one and Betty Guadella she walks up and she puts her name down she said I'm speaking you know we have a, the meeting that translated the next one eight people come up and then there's almost a fight as to who's going to speak. And then the following day we go. This is like being at the pop concerts. You know these huge tents and speakers and the like that people have at pop concerts. And you know, I'm learning about Africa. And this uh Betty Goodella, she hands up and she goes to the microphone, and you'll appreciate her spends. And she just looks at this fifteen thousand, she shouts, Amandla. And it is such a how you I can't tell you. You know, you've got goose running down your legs. And the idea that these families, who were mainly the women uh, but there, um, were passengers at this commission, and they were treated as if they were passengers, you know, because the commission is conducted in the old colonial language, uh, the minority language of English, whereas the main language is that of Tosor uh, or Zulu, uh, and the as if somehow they haven't really followed it, and quite often, Farlum, uh, the judge would uh, refer to them as being unsophisticated and uneducated. And then, of course, they would get a hold of me and say, "Get up and tell that judge not to say those things again." And they they followed the evidence too. And so it is utterly magnificent the way in which they've risen, uh, yeah, to take on their own case, just as the people did in Hillsborough just as the people did in Derry on Bloody Sunday some 40-odd years ago there. I mean, it is, a, so it is magnificent. One of the things that Lonman is meant to do is to, there's a tradition whereby the, um, if someone is killed uh, at the mine, then the job goes to a member of the family and We asked Lonman many, many times because these families were starving. I tell you, when I say starving, I I really mean starving. We had really serious problems in trying to raise money. In fact, what stopped starvation was, in fact, collections that were taken here in the UK. Um, But the the families were starving, and so they wanted the jobs. And Lonman just blanked us until the very end when uh, they disclosed some minutes, and they hadn't realized that within the minute was a decision taken by London only a few days after the killings, that they would, in fact, offer each family um, a, a job. And so the jobs were offered and it is a sort of, it is a bitter victory, a really bitter victory because I mean, if I give you one example of Mrs. Modessa, she was 18 years old and nine months pregnant when the knock came to the door on the 16th of August. She had her baby the next day, the baby died. She's now 20. She's now left her home and her family for a thousand kilometers, and she's a winch operator five kilometers down in the London mine. You know, you think, and she's not the only one. And so that's really what's happened uh, to the families. It hasn't been easy uh, uh, for them uh, in all of that. Um, Nobody by and large, cares uh, for them. So the proceedings are in English, and we managed to get it translated into uh, their language. Uh, Nothing is written, and one of the things that um, I'm going back on Sunday is that I'm publishing a book, and somebody else was writing it, but I managed to persuade uh, a a man to give me uh, $60,000, and we're doing a book um, which is called The People's History of Marikana, and it's not uh, a sort of lefty tract because it's not going to be like that. It is their story of what happened, why their husbands went and why their grandfathers went and their fathers and so on because this is the tradition going. What happened when they got the knock on the door, how they came to the commission, what they did about the evidence. They know all about this sort of stuff and we're going to publish it in Kosa, so that in 20 years' time when some little girl or some little boy says, why did my granddad die, people say, read this, watch that. But in general terms, the families are up and running, and the, you know, the, like the Hillsborough people and the, uh, the the Bloody Sunday people, the families will never be the same again. They are, to some extent, what we the word that is used. I'm not sure if I like it very much, but they are empowered, you know, without a doubt. Yep.
0: Thank you. That was truly overwhelming. Uh, two questions. One was: I'm sure uh, violence against uh, violence, suppressions of uh, protest or uh, strike was not new in uh, South Africa. Or the collusion between the state and capital. What What is it about Marikana that sets it apart, and why Why is it so defining? Is it the intensity? Is it, as you mentioned, the raw character of it? And uh, two. Are there uh, tra- uh, criminal charges against the police officers, and or is it something that follows um, from the commission uh, after the
1: findings of the commission? I think it's defining because of its sheer scale. I think I think the idea of 34 people killed on the day, 10 people killed in the run-up, is 44, something like, gosh, I think it's 91 or 92 shot. Are there? Uh, but the, you know, the, the mortuary vans being brought in in advance, uh, the 4,000 rounds extra of ammunition, I mean, this huge scale added to which is this, government participation, non-participation, and London participation, I mean, it was such a thing. And that's what defines it. And I don't think you quite see it. I mean, I've never quite seen it in the the same way. Clearly, it happened in the miners' strike here, I suppose, 1984. But it was – that's what defines it.
0: Um, I'd like to know what would you have to say about Cyril Ramaphosa, the ANC – current ANC uh, president, right? And uh, what could he have done to prevent, like, if, if he had done something more responsive, would
1: that prevent this? Is that what you want? Ramaphosa, an, an interesting man. He, so he's a director of Lonman at the time. Uh, and he's a beneficiary of what Ben was saying about black en- economic impairment. And he gave evidence at the commission, are uh, there? And what could he have done? I'll tell you what he could have done. He could have gone to the mountain. You see, in any strike, of course people say, what we want is X amount of pounds or a percentage increase or 12,500 rands here. But, you know, there comes a point in which it's not just about money. It's about the dignity of the worker. Come on, you don't deal with us like that. We're rock drillers. We're on the face. We're people. We're human beings, you know. Don't treat us like this. We're not dogs. You know what they Lundman uh, call their uh, department that deal with people. It's not even the personnel department. It's called human capital. You know, and that says a lot. They, you know, they use those words. And that's how they dealt with those people. And what was needed, I, I personally believe this, if Ramaphosa had gone to the mountain and said, look, you know me, I'm Cyril Ramaphosa, I'm not going to tell you you're going to get 12,500. What I am going to tell you is you're not going to get 12,500 sitting on this mountain, right? You want to negotiate. London say they're not going to negotiate with you, da-da-da-da-da, but I'm going to sort that out. Elect five people, come with me, I'm going to sort it. I believe there would never have been any killings. That was put to Ramaphosa in more or less those terms. He agreed? He agreed that that he didn't say there wouldn't be killings. He said there's a possibility there wouldn't be killings. Has um, he said, well, no, because he's he's now the uh, deputy president, doesn't he? So you know, he doesn't participate in such things. But I think, you know, a man with a guilty conscience, and it is a real pity because, of course, he's a hero for all of us.
0: I'm going to allow one more because I'm afraid we'll have to finish.
1: Um, so two questions. The first one is... Um, <laughs> 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 what? What What is the, um, I guess, the general purpose, or what are you trying to get out of the inquiry? Because as you've seen before with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, not much forgiveness or retributive justice was actually, well, in my opinion, was achieved in the long run. And also the last question is, where to from here? So we understand what's happened, we've seen what's happened, we've spoken about what's happened, but what are the macro policies that need to take place in order to prevent such a thing from happening again? And that's from London side, from the government side, um, and all the stakeholders. What needs to happen, in your opinion? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) What I want out of the inquiry and what we'll get out of the inquiry are entirely two different things. If I step back and look at the evidence, but also look at the politics that take place, I think what is going to happen is that a number of senior police officers, uh, Mpembe, who you see here, but probably about four or five of them, uh, that the commission will say that they should be investigated uh, and be charged uh, with culpable homicide, a sort of manslaughter, on the basis that they were negligent, that they must have known that their strategy in the course of action uh, that they pursued would have led to deaths. And I think that... uh, So that that will happen there. I think that uh, government uh, ministers... Uh, they're getting away, perhaps, with a little bit of criticism, but almost nothing. Lawnmen are going to get wrapped over the knuckles uh, about it because they could have negotiated um, and that would have stopped it. So that, that is what I think is uh, going to happen in the inquiry, and that's, that is not good. It uh, will mean that we may be able to get much easier compensation by taking civil actions, which we've already initiated, against the police officers. So that's, uh, that is good. Where do we go from here? Well, I mean, I think it is an industry that is unreconstructed since apartheid days. I mean, if you look at those shacks, I mean, you're talking about shacks that, I mean, when it rains, it's like a mud field under your feet. There's no water, there's no electricity, there's no heating, there's no nothing uh, in these shacks. And this is from colonial days. Until that system is reformed, right, until the system of the migrant labor system is reformed, until the mines themselves are reformed, until the, you know, I I suppose some genuine uh, um, democratic control inside the miners, for me, I mean, I put my hands up straight away, nationalize them. That's what I would do. Nationalize the mines are there. I mean, they have been, the people who are in favor of nationalization or partial nationalization are the employers. They like nationalization when the mines are exhausted, where they can't make any more profit, and then they don't mind too much the word nationalization. Um, but they do, uh, for me, the whole idea of taking the mines into public uh, ownership is, at the end of the day, the only way that this is going to be resolved. I mean, that is a short answer to a very complicated question, but that's that's my belief.
0: Okay, I'm really sorry to bring this to a, to a close because there are many more questions, and not surprisingly. But I do want to thank Jim very much for having come along.